So last week we talked about the story in Matthew of uh, Jesus healing two blind men and one mute man, and then his continued rejection from the people in his own hometown. And we're going to continue to talk through that gospel story uh, in Matthew chapter 9. If you want to get there, we're not quite there yet, but if you want to open your Bible or your device, Matthew chapter 9, the very end, and into chapter 10 is what we're going to talk about today. Before we do that, I want to tell you a quick story. In 1999, Wycliffe Bible translators felt called by God to do something that was a massive undertaking that they did not feel equipped to do in any way, shape, or form, but felt that God had called them to do it and that they needed to step into this miraculous work. They felt that God was giving them a vision that they called Vision 2025. It was to begin to translate the Bible into every language on earth by 2025. And in 1999, that meant that they needed to engage in 3,000 new languages over the next 25 years in order to hit that goal. And that goal seemed absolutely out of this world, but they felt God calling them to. And at that point, the most languages that they had done in one single year was 25. Now, you're not going to hit that goal if you're only doing 25 languages a year for 25 years. But now, at the end of 2023, there is now a language being engaged every 17 hours from Wycliffe Bible Translators. And actually reaching that goal of having the scriptures available to every language spoken on earth is now possible to see fulfilled in the next couple of years. That means that the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to every corner of the earth and the harvest is going to be plentiful all over the world and God is going to equip people for that harvest. It's an amazing thing if you really start to understand that idea that every people group in the world, within our lifetimes, within the next few years, might have access to the scriptures in their native language. When the CMA was started 100 plus years ago, that was one of their like dreams that, that seemed unattainable ever. And we may live to see that in the next couple of years. As we jump into the stories of the gospel, we get to see one of the most important moments in the history of the gospel when that message first begins to spread throughout the world. And so if you have your Bible, we're going to read the very end of Matthew 9 and beginning of Matthew chapter 10, as we start out this morning. Matthew 9, 35. This is right after his rejection, right after those healings. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Chapter 10, And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. The name of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, uh, 
James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So these men, Jesus tells them to pray that God will bring workers for the harvest. And these men had reached a point in their journey where they have been disciples of Jesus for a while. But now it's time for them to grow deeper in their relationship, in their spiritual growth. It's time for them to get into the game, not just watching Jesus do all these miraculous things, but he is going to send them out to do the work of the kingdom. And this is a massive hinge point in the gospel story because up until now, Jesus has done all of the work. He preached, he taught, he healed. But from this point in the story, the disciples are being sent out to do the work of the kingdom alongside and in other areas from Jesus. Jesus is modeling for us discipleship and what discipleship should look like. Should look like. He's a mentor who takes a student or students under his wings and shows them what it means to live life as a Christian. But those students, those mentees, can't just follow him forever. Eventually, they need to start doing it themselves with their mentor walking alongside of them. And then eventually the mentor can say, now go out and do the work. I think it's hilarious. At the end of 9, Jesus says, you should pray that God will raise up some workers for the harvest. And then immediately he says, hey, guess what? God answered that prayer. It's you. And they're like, wait, I prayed, but not, 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 not me. Like, right? This is, I will often say this to people and they get frustrated with me, but if somebody comes to me and says, hey, I have a really good idea for a ministry that our church should do. And then they tell me their idea. And then I say, that's a great idea. It sounds like God has laid it on your heart. And they're like, oh, no, 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 not me. He's like, but God told you that we need that ministry, so why wouldn't it be you? Right? And this is what Jesus is doing. He said, pray that God will raise up the leaders. And they probably did what Jesus asked. They've been following him. They're like, you know, I imagine Simon's like kind of cracking the whip. Like, hey, we got to do what Master tells us to do. So they all say, God, would you raise up some, some leaders for the harvest? And God says, yes. And they are the ones that are brought into that. Jesus is there at the end of chapter 9. And he's looking out over the crowds. And his reaction is not the same as mine probably would have been at the time. I would have probably seen all those crowds gathering around me. And I would have felt completely overwhelmed by that situation. I may have even been like, I need to go run and hide. Because there are crowds pressing in. But he looks at these crowds and it says that he feels great compassion for them. And that word compassion is my old favorite. You that have been around here for a while. my, My favorite Greek word. It means from the guts. From the bowels. Because in their world, you didn't have feelings in your heart. You had feelings that came from your gut. And you've all had that, right? You've all had somebody like break your heart and it makes you sick. Right? Or you fall in love and you feel butterflies. Right? It's that gut feeling. He has compassion in his splagnon. From the core of his person, he loves them. He's able to see their inner beings and their needs and it causes him deep compassion. And Jesus 
was a man who had feelings. Don't ever miss that about Jesus. We have these images of Jesus sometimes where he's just unfeeling and he's God. And we know he's man, but we don't really think about him being man. But he was. He was a man who had feelings. When he goes to the funeral for Lazarus, he weeps. When he looks out over Jerusalem, he weeps. When he's in the garden, he's so perturbed that he begins to sweat blood. There's many times it talks about him being a man of joy. There's times it talks about being a man of sorrows. He's a man who has feelings, who's also God in the flesh. And he looks over these people, the lost sheep of Israel, and he has compassion. And it tells us that he did because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus saw within them, and he could see what's going on in them. He sees people whose lives are being destroyed by sin, both their own sins and by the sins of those who were supposed to be helping them and ruling over them, but instead they are not. Jesus truly loves and cares for humanity. It's beautiful, and if you look at it in the contrast of the world around them, it's amazing because most of the religions at the time, and many that are still happening today, God doesn't love you. You're a pawn in God's chess game, whatever the God is. You, at worst, are literally like bothersome to him. But Jesus looks at the people and he is filled with compassion and love. And so this whole idea of a loving God was difficult for many people in that pagan religion to even understand. And the Jewish people understood that Yahweh is a God of love, but they were missing that Jesus was the Messiah. And so this whole idea was kind of foreign to them. And he looks at the masses of people and he feels compassion and he feels like he needs to fulfill their needs. He looks at the people and he says, you need a shepherd. Because there's people that are supposed to be shepherding them, right? There's the religious leaders that are supposed to be guiding them towards God, but they're more worried about their own fame and power to actually be taking care of Israel at the time. And the pagans have these false idols that are gods who don't even care about people, but God loves humanity and he wants them to have a relationship with him. And so Jesus tells his disciples this amazing line, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Notice it's his harvest. He sends out laborers. He's telling them there are a lot of people in this world who are ready to hear the truth of the gospel. Those seeds have already been planted, and they want to understand who God is. They want to understand the kingdom of God. The harvest is ready, but there aren't enough people to do the work yet. The need outweighs the, 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 need outweighs the ability to fulfill the need, and this is still true in many times today. There are people all over the world, as we just talked about, people in new languages every 17 hours, people all over the planet and people right here in Gallatin Valley who have not heard the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And there is a call upon every follower of Jesus to be a part of that kingdom work. They just prayed, God, would you raise up the workers? And God says, I already have. And so for us, often we might pray the same thing. God, would you raise up the workers? And God would say, here's a mirror. You are the workers. Whether you're called to the farthest ends of the earth or whether you're called in your job right now, you are a part of this kingdom-building community that are called to preach the gospel. Now, as we get into chapter 10, I want you to notice something. We already addressed this a little bit, but I think it's important enough to say twice. These men who are being sent out, there's this moment right at the beginning of 10 where he says, uh, he calls the 12 disciples, and then he calls them apostles. There's this switch because disciple just means somebody who is growing in discipline under the leadership of somebody else. But apostle literally means one who is sent out with authority. And so he says, you've been my disciples, now you're going to be apostles. But notice this, before they were apostles, they had to be disciples. You can't be sent out with the authority of Jesus until you have first followed Jesus and grown to know and understand his ways and his kingdom. It's important for us to understand, if you want to be someone that Jesus will use to send out into the world, you first have to be a disciple of his at home. You have to grow to know the Lord, to know the ways of his ministry, and then God can use you to go out. That means you study the word of God, which you're doing right now. It means more than that, that you have a strong prayer life, that you are serving in some way, that you're learning your gifts and talents, that you're being a part of a community of believers like this one and so many more things. Becoming a disciple of Jesus doesn't mean you just show up to church once a week and hear some dude yammer on for 30, 40 minutes. It means you begin to follow. You say, Jesus, you're my Lord. You're in charge of my life. How do I grow? How do I reach this point where I can be used by you to fulfill your kingdom work. Every follower of Jesus, regardless of their daily job, is called to be a disciple of his and used to make more disciples. We talk about this all the time. If you've been at this church, we have on our website, on our letterhead, all that stuff says, love God, love people, make disciples. That's our goal. Right, and we can break that down. What does each of those mean? Tim Senecal, he wants to know, how do I get a bullet point list of every one of those things means? But the overall goal, love God, love people, make disciples. I've said this before, but I remember talking to a man one time who had been at church forever. I worked at that church for five years. He was, the whole, he was there the whole time. I think he'd been there a long time before me. And I one time asked him, like, are you serving anywhere in the church? And he said, I'm not really one of those people. I'm just a learner. It took everything in me not to mock him to his face. I'm going to tell you the truth. Because I wanted to just be like, that's not a real thing. But I tried to be more gracious. I tried to be more gracious and say, well, I think we're all called to serve in ministry. 
doesn't necessarily have to be inside these walls. It could be for loving. It could be a whole bunch of things. But where are you serving the people of God? There is no one who's called to just be a learner. I met another guy one time who said that he felt his ministry was to go around to churches and to tell them what they were doing wrong. That's not a thing. And I told him that. And he he tried to take an Old Testament story about the watchman and the wall and turn that into what he was doing. I was like, no, you're just someone who wants to go critique people. That's your whole deal. How about actually making a church a better place by serving in it? We are called to serve the Lord within our church communities, within our local communities, so that we can be a part of building this kingdom. Everywhere you go in life, listen, everywhere you go in life, whether it's your daily job, or whether you're a stay-at-home mom, or whether you're captain, captain of industry, everywhere you go in life, you have a sphere of influence that God has put around you. You have people whose lives you are a part of. And God has asked us to share the truth. It doesn't mean we have to hammer people over the head. Don't be a literal Bible thumper. Just thump them on the head. But you begin to look for ways, how can I be Jesus to this person? And how can I not just be Jesus, but to tell them about the truth of the gospel? We are all called to this. This next section of Matthew, chapter 10, begins the second major discourse in the book of Matthew. You probably remember if you were here when we talked about the Sermon on the Mount, that's the first major discourse in Matthew. Jesus gives a sermon. He's mainly talking to his disciples during the Sermon on the Mount, but there's people gathered all around who are listening. They're they're eavesdropping a little bit, but Jesus knows that, so he's talking to everybody. And then this one, this discourse is, is just for his disciples. He's letting them know it's time for you to go out. He's telling them what to do, where to go, how to do it. This could be known as the sermon about the mission. As Jesus is giving the mission to them for what they are called to do. But I want you to notice something about this story. We're going to jump into this. But this mission is different than the Great Commission. That's going to come later. This mission that he's talking about right now, he is sending his disciples out to the people of Israel to do a specific mission to those people at that time. And that's important for us to understand this. Matthew chapter 10, verse 5 through 15. These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. No bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet 
when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So, this is where Jesus says, like, hey, remember where you guys were praying for God to raise up workers? Guess what? It's you. And now I'm going to send you out. And he specifically sends them to the Jewish people, the lost sheep of Israel. He tells them clearly, your mission on this mission is not to the Gentiles. It's not even to the Samaritans who are half Jewish, half Gentile. He says, but to the Jewish brethren specifically. So why would he say that? I think there's multiple reasons, but one of them is he's following his own model. If you go forward to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, when you receive the, law, the, Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He starts at home, and then the gospel spreads like wildfire. And so he's saying, this is step one. We are starting right here amongst our own people. And Romans tells us it was first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. He's following his own model and showing us what to do. To start at home and then to go beyond. He first pursues the lost sheep of Israel. And what can we say about lost sheep? They probably have bad shepherds. The shepherds didn't keep them safe and they're lost. And so Israel has these shepherds, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these leaders who are supposed to be guiding them spiritually and yet they're not. And so they've gone astray. And I love, I'm not going to get into the whole connection here, but that song and the verse about God pursuing the one lost sheep and leaving the 99, like it's a beautiful idea that he pursues the lost. He's always trying to get people to understand you go through the whole gospel. He's trying to get these people to understand that the kingdom of God is expanding. They have this really narrow view of what it should be. And he says, you don't understand how massive it is. You don't understand how much it's going to grow. He says, we're going to start here. But from here, it is going to expand to every corner of the earth and into eternity. He's trying to get them to just begin to understand that. And I love in verse 7, he says, And proclaim as you go. This is the call when Jesus tells them to go out into the world. And it's the same when we talk about the Great Commission in Matthew 28. He says, go. And when I say every week at the end of church, and I say, go and be the church, the idea there is go as you're going, as you're living, as you're in whatever sphere of influence that God has you in, go and be the church. It doesn't just mean go to Tanzania. It doesn't just mean go to Morocco or wherever it is that maybe God is calling you to go to at some point. But it means as you're living your life, as you go every day, go and preach the gospel. This mission that he's sending them out, we could call the smaller commission. Later, he'll give the great commission to go out into the, all the world. But for now, he's sending them out because he was born to be the Messiah of the Jewish people. 
But then he wants them to eventually understand, I'm not just the Messiah to the Jewish people. I am the Savior to all the world. But right now he's starting. He says, we're going to go out after the lost sheep who have lost sight of who God really is. And so he sends them out to do that. And then he says this thing that people have been struggling with ever since. Verse 8. He says, I'm going to give you power and authority, and I want you to go heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and cast out demons. Now, I think some people miss part of this because, again, we're not talking about the Great Commission here. We're talking about something that Jesus told his group of 12 men to go out into Israel at this time and place and to do these things. And so people say, well, if, if Jesus said that, then why aren't we seeing all of this all the time? Why don't we see dead people raised? Why don't we see sick being healed and all those things? And it was a calling for them at that time. That doesn't mean that God doesn't continue to do those things. Some people believe in the idea, in theology of cessationism. They believe that those gifts died with those men. I don't believe that. But I do believe that God can continue to do these mighty miracles, and I hear testimonies of them, and I wish I could tell you I've seen somebody raised from the dead. I have not yet. I'm hoping, because that'd be pretty rad. I've seen people healed. I haven't seen limbs grow back, but I've seen people who have come to me and say, last week I had a scan, and there was cancer everywhere, and this week I had a scan, and there's cancer nowhere. I've, seen, I've, I've heard testimonies from people, those things that cannot be explained by us. I still believe that God heals. But I also think we in our world, I'll be blunt, we, we lack faith at times. Or we don't even go to God. We just say, well, I'll just, I'll just go on this medicine. I'll just do this. And I don't have anything wrong with medicine. I take medicine every day for stuff I got going on. But first I went to the Lord and I begged God to take this from me. Like Paul, God, would you take this to me? And God says, my grace is sufficient for you. God can still work miracles. And I even believe that a lot of the things that we attribute to medicine are miracles. Why is it not a miracle that somebody figure out a way to make a pill that takes away a disease? That's a miracle to me. That reminds me, I get made fun of for saying miracle just like Ben gets made fun of for saying amen. A man, a man. At least he doesn't say a woman. Sorry. I made a big switch there from like really serious to goofy. I'm sorry. Sometimes. Sometimes we just lack faith or we just don't even go to God and ask him for healing. That's why I think we hear stories from all other places in the world of just incredible healings because over there, they got nothing else. They're just crying out, God, would you bring healing? We go to the doctor, we get some medicine, we do all these things, and we say, and God, it would be cool if you just did like miraculous healing. But we don't actually, let's be honest, we don't really like believe that God will. I think most of us believe God can. I do. I believe God can, but sometimes I lack the faith to believe that God will do it in this time, in this place. And so it's a call to have greater faith as well. So he goes out and he tells them to do mighty works and to not take 
anything with them. Catch that? He says, I want you to go and I want you to take nothing with you. No money, no backpack, not even an extra shirt, not even an extra pair of sandals. Don't even take a walking stick with you. That's kind of crazy. And I can see some of you already who are like the planners. You're like, that's a nightmare, right? I'd be like, okay, let's go. But if you're a planner, you're like, no, I need all these backup plans. He says, no, go, go with nothing. Go with just faith. But that was for that mission at that time. Again, I want you to see that's not how it'll always be. In Luke 22, when Jesus is talking about a different mission, he says, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? He's saying, did you learn that I would provide everything? They say, nothing. He says, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. So there's different commissions for people at different times going into different places. But for now, in this story, Jesus sends them out and just says, take nothing with you. Learn to just completely and totally trust. And then he tells them, as you're going into these cities, if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. He goes out and he just says, find a worthy house, right? You're not going to stay at a hotel. You're just going to find somebody's house and say, hey, can we stay with you? And if they're worthy, let your peace fall on them. If they're not worthy, I love this. This is born out of an ancient rabbinical tradition where a rabbi would go to a place and he would, he would give a blessing like, God, would you bless this place and the people who inhabit it? But then later, if they realized that those people were not worthy of that blessing, they would say the blessing again, but like reverse it. They'd say, God, would you bless this place and the people who inhabit it, but not really. And then they would leave and they would shake the dust off of their feet because those people had not acted in a worthy manner. He says, and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave the house or the town. The idea was also born out of the ancient times when the Jewish people would leave Israel and then they would come back into Israel. Before they would step foot back into Israel, they would shake the dust off of their feet because they didn't want to bring any of the Gentile sin and debauchery into Israel with them. It became a tradition, and we actually see it in the New Testament uh, with Paul and uh, Barnabas when they're coming out of Antioch and Pisidia in Acts 13. They preached the gospel in Antioch, and the Jews rejected them because of their jealousy that they were getting all the attention. And so when they leave Antioch, they shake off the dust from their feet. It is a judgment. It is a harsh judgment. It's saying, your, your city is so broken, so full of sin, so full of debauchery, I don't even want the dirt from your roads on me. And Jesus says, if a house is not worthy, take your blessing back, shake your dust off, and go. Jesus says, it'll be worse for those people. This is nuts. It says, it'll be worse for those people on the day of judgment than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. That's intense. If you know the story in the Old Testament, Sodom and Gomorrah were completely laid waste by angels of God. Just utterly decimated. There's too much in this story of the call of the sending out of the 12 for me to do it all this week. And so 
we're going to do something we don't normally do and just kind of pause in the middle of a story. But there's so much more. It's so rich. And so we're going to come back to this story next week. But as we close today, I want to go back as we finish to the beginning. This whole text is about the fact that there are people in the world that are ready to hear the gospel. There is a harvest in the world and not enough workers to go in and take in the harvest. Jesus came and modeled discipleship to us. He modeled for us what it means to raise up disciples, to be mentors and good followers and good leaders. And he mentored us and he he showed us what it means to raise up more disciples so that there's more workers to go out and to pull in the harvest so that the kingdom of God can continue to build and build and build until he comes again. This is the mission of the church. It's the mission that we are all called to be a part of because there are not bench warmers in the kingdom of God. Everybody is called to be in the game in a different way, in a different sphere of influence. There are no Christians that are called to be sideline Christians. We are called to either be growing in our own discipleship because maybe you're a baby Christian and you say, I don't know how to do that. I just need to grow more mature. Well, guess what? We have men's ministry and women's ministry and small group ministry and children's ministry and kids' ministry and all these things because we want to help you grow to know Jesus more fully so that you can go out and do the same thing for other people. So we are either called to be growing in our own relationship or helping and serving others to help them to come to know Jesus more fully. My prayer for our church body today is that we continue to take that calling from the Lord seriously and continue to be a part of building the kingdom of God. As I look at everything that is happening at this church, from small groups and all these amazing ministries to the potential for our new building home and all these things. I'm so excited for all of it just because I really believe in my heart that it's all moving towards making more disciples for Jesus. That's what it's for. And I look at a church that has 50 people serving kids and youth every week. And I look at the small groups going on and the blessings that they are in my life. And I look at the small groups with the youth where there's adults pouring into our kids and I just could not be more excited to be a part of what God is doing. And thank you so much for being here and being a part of this church as well. I continue to look forward to see what God's going to do because he consistently blows me away. I don't know about you. If I could have seen five years ago when I came here, what would be now, I would have burst into tears just crying at the goodness of God. And sometimes I still want to. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the calling on our lives because we are created in your image to be a part of what you are doing. And so even even the fact that you give us this gift, this free gift of salvation and this free gift of being a part of building the kingdom, even that gift from you is actually a, a blessing for us to be a part of what you're doing because we were created for purpose. We are created to be a part of something larger than ourselves, to, to be a part of your kingdom. And so would you help us to do that? And everybody here this morning, if anyone's sitting there thinking like, 
I, I am just a learner. God, would you make it clear to them that they have a role in this kingdom? Or if anybody's just sitting here saying, I don't know what my gifts are, my talents, God, would you make those things clear? Would you bring people around them that would speak truth into their lives and tell them, I see this gifting in you. I see this passion in you. And you should lean into that, God. Whatever it is, help us as a church, as a community, as a family to continue to grow together, to love you more and to tell more people about how much you love them. In Jesus' name, amen.